Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, I want to encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles or on your devices to Luke chapter 10. We'll be starting our study today in Luke 10, beginning in verse 26. And as you're turning here, I want to take an opportunity to welcome the rest of our church family worshiping in the Family Life Center. I want to welcome you into this conversation, encourage you to turn in your Bibles or on your devices to Luke chapter 10, verse 26. Now, before we open Scripture and, and immerse ourselves in the study of God's Word, we want to take a moment to pray and It's on your mind as well as it is mine, this storm that has been raging and is moving north. We are mindful of Irma today. And I know that many of you who may be worshiping with us, we pray that you find comfort in our company and the company of the Lord who is among us today. Praying for you, but we also have friends and family who currently are in the path of the storm or whose safety is threatened in some way or at some level. And you've told me about them. Pray for my mother, pray for my father, pray for my children, my grandchildren, and so forth. And we will. That's exactly what we do right now. But I also want you to know what we're doing as a church. Earlier this week, we reached out uh, to our local leaders as well as hospital administration across the street, And also, we reached out to the leaders of uh, local Red Cross, the American Red Cross, to offer um, whatever we can provide as a church in in these days of of, um, storm and in the aftermath, whatever destruction uh, these storms um, have have brought upon our neighbors. Uh, The American Red Cross has been in contact with us, and we are now identified as a backup shelter. And what that means for us is this. Uh, In the days to come, if the three main uh, evacuation shelters that are south of us fill up, they will call. And we will make available the use of our facilities. And at that time, all of us will have an opportunity at some level to volunteer and serve the needs of the Red Cross and of our neighbors who are uh, seeking temporary uh, help. And so we will communicate that with you in the ways that we do, through email and social media. But in the meantime, we pray. We pray right now uh, for those who are in harm's way, for those who have lost loved ones in the islands, for those who have lost property, for those who are still threatened, maybe those who are traveling right now. We lift them up. We pray for those who have remained behind to care for the most vulnerable who could not leave. We hold them now in our collective heart. And we lift them before the Lord. 
Would you with me go to the Lord now in a moment of prayer? Let's bow together. Most glorious God, we recognize that you are sovereign over all the earth. We recognize that we are a part of a planet that is vulnerable and suspect to all of the laws of nature that wreak sometimes great havoc upon its people. And in the midst of these days of chaos, in the midst of these days of truly great suffering among those in South Texas and in Louisiana and in the Caribbean islands and in uh, the path of Irma even now, we lift them up and pray that you would be the ever-present help in time of trouble. We pray that you would demonstrate why it is we believe in a God who meets us in the storm and refuses to leave us alone. Today we worship you because our confidence is in you. But we hold up high into the light of Christ all those who are on our minds today. Protect them. Keep them safe from harm. And we pray that through these days you would bind in perfect unity, neighborliness, that we may love one another through the storm and find you standing over us when all the wind has ceased and the waters have stopped their rising. We love you and trust you in your most holy name. In the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So last week, we began a conversation in here. We began a study, a series of ser sermons entitled, Love My Neighbor. And last week, we saw a, a man come to Jesus, a lawyer, with a very simple question. Lord, what's the most important thing? Of all the commandments, what's the most important? And our Lord said to this lawyer, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with everything that's in you. Love God. But there is a second, and it's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and all of the prophets and last week we began to imagine some things about that statement that Jesus made we said some things about what it means to love God with everything that's in us and to love our neighbor as ourselves. last week I made the audacious claim that you can't love God without loving your neighbor that it's impossible because one flows right out of the other what I said last week was that the way we love God most fully is by loving who God loves. And who is that? Well, it's whoever God puts in your path. We said not only is it important to love God by loving God, uh, by loving who it is that God loves, we said that we also love God by loving how God loves. By taking the risk 
of stepping into the mess of somebody else's life. Last week we imagined the beautiful translation of Eugene Peterson of the prologue of John where Eugene Peterson translates verse 1 or verse 14 of that chapter. The word became flesh and bone and moved into the neighborhood. We said that's how God loves. God moves into the neighborhood of you. We imagined what Ken Geyer said last week about the kind of love with which God loves us. Ken Geyer said that in Jesus Christ, God stepped into the warm lake of humanity. And we said, for us to love the way God loves means that we step into the warm lake of someone else's humanity. Well, but the same guy who asked the question last week, the same lawyer, after Jesus gave that great response, what's the most important thing, Lord? Well, love. Love God with everything in you and love your neighbor. After Jesus laid it all out there, the lawyer said, but I have a follow-up question. And this is where we pick up the story. Chapter 10 of, verse, of, of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10, verse 26. Listen to these words. Verse 26. Uh, nine. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, uh, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stopped him, stripped him, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine over them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three... Do you think was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Well, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Maybe the most fascinating part of today's text is how it begins The lawyer has a follow-up question, but the follow-up question reveals his motive. It begins this way, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, "Eh, who is my neighbor really? Wanting to justify himself. See, the lawyer was seeking some narrow definition of the word neighbor, so narrow that it was just thin enough, maybe just thick enough for him to obey it, but it's thin enough for him to get by with not loving 
everybody. I mean, who really is my neighbor? This is sometimes what we call um, loophole spirituality. Yeah. Looking for the loophole so that we do whatever it takes to look righteous, to look like we've done the right thing, to look like we're living a life of obedient spirituality, but somehow finding the loophole that allows us to not really take this thing seriously. You know one of the best examples of loophole spirituality? Well, it's what, what's known as the Sabbath day's journey. We've talked about this, I think, before. We talked about on the Sabbath day in the first century Jewish mind. Honoring the Sabbath was a big deal. In fact, still is. In fact, whole codes of ethics were put into place to make sure that on the Sabbath, no one worked, no one violated the Sabbath. It's the fourth commandment, you know. It's the one most of us break with great flair. <laughs> we're kind of proud of the way we break it, how busy we are. You shall remember the Sabbath. And keep it holy unto the Lord. Six days you shall work, but the seventh it shall be a Sabbath unto the Lord. So whole systems were put into place to make sure that nobody worked too much so that they can honor the Sabbath. One of the best examples is this. There are some things you can't carry. There's some things you can't do. Things you can't uh, work on. Things you can't say. But there's also places you can't go. In fact, if you were to walk too far away from your home on the Sabbath, it would be considered work. So the Sabbath day's journey was this. You're only allowed to walk X number of miles from your home. Let's say three. So three miles from your home, you know what they would do? The night before, they would take part of their property and place it three miles away from their home and walk three more miles from it and put another piece of their property and three more miles from it to put another piece of their property so that on the Sabbath day they could literally walk miles from their home and not technically be too far from their property. Missing the whole point. See, the Sabbath was set up as a day of renewal, a day of soul renewal and rest and worship where the world and all of its humanity is restored in this glorious, beautiful moment of restfulness before God, but they simply turned it into a rule to follow with lots of loopholes to set him free. In the same way, the lawyer who came to Jesus asking about who is my neighbor really was not interested in loving everybody. He was interested in learning who can I narrowly define as my neighbor so narrowly that it frees me up to be okay hating these other people. Uh, Henry Nouwen reflected about this passage and what Henry Nouwen said was, he was really looking for a legal definition that allowed him to kind of stand up in the court of law if he were accused of not loving someone. He said what, what Henry Nouwen said was, was what this guy really was seeking from Jesus was a definition kind of like this. Jesus, who is my neighbor? Well... A neighbor herein, after referred to as the party of the first part, is to be construed as meaning a person of Jewish descent whose legal residence is within a radius of no more than three statute miles from one's own legal residence, unless there is um, another person of Jewish descent herein after referred to as the party of the second part, uh, living closer to the party of the first part, right? Uh, 
party of the first part, then one is oneself, in which case the party of the second part is to be construed as a neighbor to the party of the first part, and then the one uh, is oneself relieved of all responsibility of any sort or any kind whatsoever. God, I made my brain hurt just then. I... As silly as that is, it's kind of what he was after. As ridiculous as that is, isn't that what we do? I mean, we wouldn't say it that way, and we, we wouldn't have the audacity to, to claim it that way, like we somehow deliberately seek to limit our love, but isn't that what we do when we say, well, who am I really responsible for loving? Because is it really my neighbor if, well, if they've wronged me, if they've offended me? Is it really my neighbor if, if they've spoken all manner of evil against me and slandered my name? Are they really still my neighbor? Are they my neighbor if they are a part of another religion? Are they my neighbor if they're a part of no religion and, and they're really a critic of my own? Are they still my neighbor? Are they my, my neighbor if they have no legal documents to prove it? Jesus calls us to love liberally. Jesus, the Christ, calls us to love with a radically inclusive love so much so that there is no one who can't fit into our definition of neighbor, but we seek sometimes under the radar to, to limit, to limit who it is that we call neighbor. So the man asked Jesus, Really, who's my neighbor? And Jesus did the thing that Jesus did. Jesus always does this kind of thing. He doesn't answer the question. You ask Jesus a straightforward question, he will not give you an answer. You ask him a yes or no question, he will not give you a yes or no response. He'll tell a story. A good rabbi does that. You know why? To make sure that you don't get the easy answer and to let you off the hook of the struggle that is required of you in figuring out truth. So he said, here is my response. There's a man who was traveling down the Jericho Road and he was beat up. I mean, he was beat so bad he was really beat down is what he was. Beat down into a ditch. And there he is lying half dead. And on that particular day, a priest comes by and sees him and a Levite comes by and sees him. And this is how the text picks it up. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. A priest and a Levite. You know, I don't like the way this is traditionally interpreted. Traditionally, through years and years of hearing this story taught and preached again and again, you know the parallel that we tend to make in churches. Because the priest kind of worked at the church, and because the Levite led the music, I've always heard worn-out stories about, well, this represents the pastor and the minister of music. I mean, I, I can understand that about the minister of music, but <laughs> just saying... I don't like it, not because it puts us on the hook, but because it takes y'all off of it. 
Because the truth is, in the first century, these two individuals, the priest and the Levite, represented everything that was good and right and holy and just about religious practice. They symbolized in the symbolic world of the first century mind, they symbolized everything that was stable and right and good and, and trustworthy. In fact, think about the role of the priesthood. They stood as a linchpin in between heaven and earth. Their function was to serve as those who interceded on behalf of God. That's why traditionally when we pray intercession prayers, the palms are open toward God. And they also give benedictions, blessings from God in which the palms are usually face down imparting a blessing in the first century symbolic world of the Jewish faithful. The priest stood as the linchpin between heaven and earth, between divinity and humanity, between God and people. I mean, these cats knew spirituality. In fact, they daily recited the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Rehenu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every day they recited that. They reminded people of that. They probably preached fantastic sermons from glorious passages like Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you, O people, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And yet, as strong as a symbolic power was when they thought of the priest and the Levite, they saw the man lying in the ditch, beaten, half dead, struggling for every breath. The text is clear to say they saw him and passed by on the other side. Now, if it wasn't controversial enough, I mean, that was provocative to tell that story. In fact, I imagine that some of the other listeners who are paying attention to Jesus' story are looking over their shoulder asking, I hope nobody from the temple is listening because they're going to nail this guy talking this way about the temple leaders. As if it weren't controversial enough, he takes it a step further. He goes right up to the line and then steps right over it. He says, but... There was another guy walking down the road, a Samaritan, at which point a collective groan comes across his listeners. Because in the first century mind of a faithful Jew, nothing was more cringeworthy than a Samaritan. A Samaritan, in the first century Jewish mind, a Samaritan was presumably from a distorted religion they were from an inferior ethnicity they had a way of life that they just couldn't understand they had music that nobody else listened to they had food that was prepared with strange spices they had an accent that was so different than the rest of us and they represented everything that kind of gave you the creeps to the first century faithful Nothing gave you the creeps more than the Samaritans. Now, before we go further in the story, I need you to do something. I need you to think about who that represents for you. Who is it that causes you to cringe? And you say, 
Oh, but Sean, nobody, because I'm a Christian. And I love everybody. Okay. Well, maybe you know somebody who cringes when they think of other individuals or other groups of individuals. See, the thing is, I can give you some examples about how people like ourselves will cringe at certain persons and certain people groups, but I'm not going to do that. You know why? It would rob you of the struggle that this text is requiring of you. You need to figure out where it is that you feel the cringe factor. Who is it that in your mind causes you to say, I just don't get them? If they would just clean up their lives, if they would just change this, if they would just believe that. As soon as you have them in your mind, I need you to hold them there. Because as disturbing as this is, they are the heroes of this story. And until we fill in the blank with whoever it is that gives us the creeps or makes us cringe, we won't understand the impact of what Jesus was up to. He's trying to shock them with the reality that even though the priest saw, and even though the Levite saw, it was the Samaritan who saw. We read about it this way. Here's how it's described. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. And you know what he did? He goes to him. He pours his wine and oil upon his wounds. He binds them, puts them on his own animal, takes him down to the inn, cares for him. And then when he has to leave, he says to the innkeeper, take my money and provide for his health. And when I return, I will give you more. The priest saw. The Levite saw. But it was the Samaritan who saw. At the heart of this parable, this disturbing parable is this. At the heart of it, it's about how we see one another. Jesus said that the eye is the lamp of the body. This is how he put it in Matthew 6. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye, if you see, if it is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. At the heart of this story and at the very center of this question about who is my neighbor is a question about how we see other people. What do you see when you see another? So it was years and years ago and we were living in another, another state. And I used to take my boys to a hibachi place for lunch. Loved hibachi, still do. They were very small, though, and this hibachi place was really just a hole in the wall. It really was. It was literally at the end of a gas station. You could get your gas and hibachi, sometimes in the other order, but... Uh. And they were just around the corner 
from a, a corporation, Denso Corporation. It's a big factory that created um, brake pads. It was Japanese-owned. So all the upper management were all Japanese. And, and, and every once in a while, when we were there having hibachi, small groups of them would come over at lunch and have lunch as well. Three, four, five men, Japanese men, uh, in their uniform. Or their, yeah, their uniform. And one, one day, Jackson is with me. He's a toddler at this point. And in a toddler volume, <laughs> we go up to the register to pay. We're finished. And a group of about seven or eight of these Japanese managers of Denzel comes in. They're all in their uniform. And, and Jackson, at the top of his voice, says, Hey, Dad, look at those men. I said, yeah, I see them, buddy. I see them. Hey, do you know what's the same about all them? I said, shh. (laughs) Just a minute. Hang on, buddy. Just a minute. No, no, no. There's something that's the same about all of them. Look at them, Dad. There's something the same. I know it's the same. I said, I just wanted to just, just, you know, just kind of. I said, can I have my bill? Can I just pay? Just wait. Hang on, buddy. No, no. I know what's the same. They're all wearing blue shirts. Yes, buddy, they are. <laughs> and in that moment, it occurred to me, you know, I, we're not born seeing difference. We pick that up on the way. And as, as we grow, we pick up these lenses through which we see life, these, these filters that cover our eyes. And, and along the way, we pick up religious filters, and we pick up social and cultural and racial and political filters through which we look at life and God and people to the extent that it, it, it impacts how we see one another. To the extent that sometimes I wonder if we have ever really seen each other void of all the lenses that we pick up along the way. And I think the mark of true spiritual maturity is when we come to the place where we ask God, remove the lenses, let the scales fall from my eyes that I may be able to see others the way you you see them. Because there is a difference between seeing and seeing. Jesus said, you know, you've got eyes, but you fail to see. It reminds me of all those wonderful post-resurrection stories in the gospel where people run into the living Jesus, but they don't recognize him. Mary sees the gardener. She sees the gardener, but she doesn't recognize the Christ. The two disciples on their way back to Emmaus after the resurrection, a stranger comes and walks alongside them. They see the stranger but they don't recognize it's Christ. Thomas, about a week after the resurrection, Thomas finally comes and gets to see the risen Christ. He sees Jesus, but it's not until he touches his wounds that he recognizes Christ in the woundedness of this world. There's a difference between seeing and seeing. And the priest comes and sees. The the, the Levite comes and sees, but they don't recognize. 
And it's maybe because of a, a number of filters or lenses that, that were on their eyes and we all can make assumptions about what they may be. They were too busy. They were focused on religion and not people. They were afraid of being beat up and thrown into the ditch with the guy. We could think of a thousand different lenses that could have been preventing them from actually seeing the moment. But the real question is not what was it that prevented them from seeing. The question is what prevents you and me. Because the Samaritan came and he not only saw, but he recognized. What did he recognize? Just this. The holy presence and action of God bidding him to come. He saw in the ditch and in the woundedness, in the scars, in the man half alive, the holy presence and action of God bidding him to come, which raises the question, what would it take for you to look into the life of someone in your neighborhood so closely and for so long that you see past the lens? What would it take to look so closely into the lives of another that you begin to see the holy presence and action of God in them. So Alan Roxburgh is the author of an amazing book entitled Missional, Joining God in the Neighborhood. It was this book that rocked my symbolic world, shifted how I think right now about mission and neighborliness and love and existence he said that everybody has a neighborhood, and I'm not just talking about your cul-de-sac. I'm talking about the neighborhood of you. And in everybody's neighborhood, there are individuals in that neighborhood, and in the life of every one of the individuals in your neighborhood, God is up to something. Whether they know it or not, whether they feel it, sense it, recognize it or not, God is up to something in them. How do we know that? Because you and I come in here and we confess that all human beings are created in the image of God, God's glorious image. That means we either believe that or not. And if we do believe that all persons are created in the image of God, that means embedded in every mortal is the holy presence and action of God. Attempting every day to rise up and, and be alive and discovered and recognized. That's why Alan Roxburgh says the church now needs poets. Not poets who just write lines of iambic pentameter. <laughs> but poets are people who see and recognize beauty. Poets are those who look into mystery and say, that's gorgeous. Poets are those who tune their ear to hear the music being played in life. Have you looked at your neighbor long enough to see the art of their humanity? Have you tuned your ear to their story enough to know what they're afraid of and what 
gets them moving in the morning and what gives them their drive? What is it that is their passion? Because it's possible that buried within that passion is actually the divine presence and action of God attempting to be recognized. And what that individual needs, what your neighbor needs, is a poet who points to it and says, that's the love of God. This is why I love the story of the conversion of Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda spent many, many years as an atheist and a critic of the Christian faith until she became a Christian. And in a Newsweek interview, the interviewer said, why is it that you became a Christian all these years and you, you criticized people of faith and yet why is it that you surrendered to this and actually became a Christian? And her answer was, was a stunning answer that still has me buzzing. She said, because I felt reverence humming within me. When was the last time you took some neighbor so seriously that you could hear the holy hum of God in them? Because when you do, when you begin to recognize that that thing that turns them on and makes them come alive, when you begin to recognize that the thing that gives them a sense of beauty and grace and mobilization in their lives, when you begin to realize that is the holy hum of God, it will draw you into ditches. It will cause you to take risks. Because once you hear the holy hum, you can't leave it alone. Let's pray. God, we recognize that that's how you work and always are working. Way past our lenses, cracking the, the filters through which we see dimly. You, you pierce the darkness with light. You desire to be recognized. We pray that you would somehow this day tune our ears to hear the holy hum. Make clean our vision that we may see the holy presence and action of you. But we recognize before we can even see it and recognize it in the lives of others, we have to somehow acknowledge it in our own. Show us this day what it looks like to yield to your holy hum. Show us this day that if we long to love our neighbor, then we need your help in seeing them. In the name of Christ our Lord.